You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. In today's episode, we're joined by Wall Street legend, Leon Cooperman. Leon was the head of asset management for Goldman Sachs for many years, and then established his own firm, Omega Advisors. We'll talk with Leon about changes in global markets and the role for business and government as the country recovers. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Lee Cooperman, thank you so much for joining us today and making time out of your busy schedule. Scott and I wanted to ask you some questions about the future of the economy, what's going on now, how you see things. Look, this isn't your first rodeo. You've been through some major cyclical things in the market. How do you see what's happening now and what bearing does it have on the future of our economy? Well, you're quite correct when you say it's not my first rodeo. This is the eighth recession-induced spare market I've lived through. This is different than the ones in the past because it's a combination of a financial crisis, oil price collapse, and of course the coronavirus, which has caused a broad-scale shutdown of the economy. In none of these past cycles I've lived through ever was there a broad-scale shutdown of the economy. And this also unfortunately occurred at a time when the stock market was very expensive by historical standards. If you study past cycles, and the last comment will be the most relevant, on average, a typical bear market declines about 25%. This one went down 37%. So, you know, 35% peak to trough, you know, larger than average, but not unusual. What was unusual was the speed with which it occurred. It lasts about a year, and recessions last about a year. So that's uh, the tie-up. GDP contracts about 2%. Earnings drop somewhere between 15 and 20%. Importantly, and this is a very important observation, it explains the market action. Importantly, the stock market bottoms on average about three months prior to the economic bottom. So the low so far was March 27th, and I think the economic trough will probably be somewhere around June. So that relationship would have held. So I think the good news I have for uh, the listeners is I think that the 2187 low of March will be the low of the market cycle. But in all honesty, with the market now over 3,000, that's not saying a hell of a lot. And I've been surprised by the speed of the market rise. And that comes from somebody I am bullish about the virus being fixed. Uh, I have this simplistic view that when the world focuses on a problem, that there's enough intelligent people around the world that they will find a solution to the problem. And I'm optimistic that the economy will open up starting this month that we're in, and it's already starting. But I think all that has kind of been discounted. And I have a list of 10 items that make me conservative at the current time, where I think the market has discounted the good news. You famously put out these 10 items, and people are talking about it. So tell us what you think. Well, I don't know about famously, but anyway. uh, And let's take it one at a time, because with the market acting better than I thought, that I'm examining each one of these assumptions. So number one observation, capitalism as we have known it will likely be changed forever. And what what makes me say that is when the government protects you on the downside, they have every right to regulate the upside. So the government's going to be in our pants in a way that they've never been in the past. And there's a recent example of that. I don't know if it was a senator or a congressman. I didn't catch his name. 
but someone came out and said the airline should not fly with a load factor of an excess of 67% because of the virus. And he went on to say that if you don't like it, effectively lump it, we bailed you out. Well, there's no airline I know can make money at a 67% occupancy or load factor. So that's number one. Number two, the country is moving to the left and taxes are going to go up quickly if Biden wins, more slowly if Trump wins. But I think taxes have to go up as they should go up given the fiscal condition of the country. Third, I've been saying this now for three years. We've been living in an abnormal world and that low interest rates are indicative of a troubled economy and in themselves not bullish. What I mean by an abnormal world Going back three years ago, two years ago, a year ago, and even now, there's probably about $14 trillion of sovereign debt that carries a negative interest rates. Just say to yourself, if you lend money to Japan or Germany or Switzerland for 10 years, you get back less than you lent them 10 years later. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's, 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 it's not what the world is all about. Okay? So everybody that's cheering on these negative interest rates, take a look at Japan and take a look at Europe. European and Japanese price earnings ratios are lower than they are in the United States and they have negative interest rates. So if you're a capitalist, you don't want negative interest rates. And, uh, you know, I think debt is growing much more rapidly than the economy is growing. The country was founded in 1776. We have no debt. We now have about 23 or $24 trillion of sovereign debt. So now that's what, 250 odd years. And that debt is going up by $4 trillion or $3 trillion a year. And it's a, a growth rate well in excess of the growth in the economy, which means to me that more and more of our, our national income will have to be devoted to debt service, which will be a retardant on economic growth. Fourth, demand is likely to come back slowly. Uh, if you're talking about a sporting event or a concert, I think that you're going to have to have a vaccination in place and a vaccination card if you want access to a sporting event or a concert, you'll have to show your vaccination card. That's at least a year away. Fifth, business will incur substantial compliance costs. You see the need uh, to comply with new rules and regulations. Uh, sixth, there'll be substantial equity issuance by companies, not equity repurchases like we've seen in the last five years, but equity issuance. So United Airlines, which I don't single out in a negative way, they just got caught, but they bought back 35% of the company in the last five or six years probably pay an average price of $65 a share. And recently they sold a billion dollars of stock at roughly $25 a share. So I think you're gonna see a lot more of that as big dollars have been lost and more and more companies are gonna to have to raise capital to replace what they've lost. Seventh item, uh, a big supporter to the stock market the last five years has been about a 2% reduction annually in outstanding shares as companies took their free cash flow and their, their earnings and platter into stock repurchase. That game is largely over. Uh, I disagree with it, but I think, you know, stock repurchase has almost become a dirty word. I think clearly those companies that are forced to take government assistance, they can forget about stock repurchase. But even those that don't, I think they're going to be very reluctant to do it, given the uncertainty of the environment. My eighth observation is profit margins tend to be mean reverting, and profit margins were at a very record high in January when we came into this. Think about it, you know, you're supposed to be in balance in your budget when you're fully employed. We were running a trillion dollar deficit in January when the economy was fully employed and throw it right. at all this other stuff that's being done. My ninth observation, uh, credit is cheaper than stocks, not government credit, but, you know, 
corporate and high yield credit. High yield basically is about 7%. You, you take one divided by seven, it's about a 15 multiple. And the S&P is not going to do our 20 times earnings. So the stock market is more expensive than credit. And that's not a good thing. And finally, I said this a month ago, it's now become more commonly accepted and understood. But I'm a watcher of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for good reason. You know, uh, uncharacteristically, Buffett sold his airline stocks into weakness. I see he sold his Goldman Sachs stock uh, and he's been sitting on $135 billion in cash doing very little. So if the greatest investor in my generation and really in modern history is having difficulty figure out what to do, who am I to be so polled? So my bottom line is, and it's higher than it was a month and a half ago. I, I got to recognize the market's told me I'm wrong. But I think to me, a fair value in the market is the following. Take 25% of the S&P and say that's in the large cap growth technology sector of the market. I give them a 30 multiple, which is about where they are today. And I say the other 75% of the market is worth 16 times earnings. 16 times if you're a bull, you would tell me that's low relative to interest rates. I'd say it's slightly high relative to history. So if I take 75% at 16 and 25% at 30, that's a weighted average multiple of a little over 19, which would equate to about 29.25 on the S&P, and the S&P is currently around 30.50. I'm normally uh, bullish, uh, but I would find myself uh, very conservatively postured at the current time. I think the market's fully added, uh, fully uh, capitalized. And I would say I would make two other observations that make assessing the market difficult. Number one is probably 70 or 80% of the volume is no longer being done by human thinking. It's done by the machines. And the right. machines basically buy strength, they sell weakness, and they exaggerate the moves up and down. And I also say more recently, uh, China and Hong Kong are becoming front page news. And I think that is not a positive development. Anything can happen there. So I would say overall, I would give you a conservative assessment of things. So there's a lot to unpack here. I, bring, I want to bring my colleague Scott Miller in here. And I think Scott wants to ask you some questions about capitalism. Yes, I'd like to start where you started, which is this notion of, uh, of you, can't have, you can't privatize the gains and expect to socialize the losses. And I, I still remember well how, how frustrated voters were back in the financial crisis with the notion of too big to fail. I'm a capitalist and uh, I take to quoting one of the great capitalists and very articulate gentleman, Winston Churchill, where he said, the main vice of capitalism is the uneven distribution of prosperity. The main vice of socialism is the equal distribution of misery. He also famously said, you don't make poor people rich by making rich people poor. Well, the redistributionists uh, got their way because I think rich people have lost a shitload of money here. And so they're evening <laughs> out or flattening out this uh, income disparity. Yeah, fair point. But let me let me talk about the companies themselves, because we, we woke up over the weekend and read that Hertz Rent-A-Car is now bankrupt. Bankruptcies are happening. And what it appears to happen is the is the largest and, and companies with the best balance sheets. But large companies tend to be surviving this, writing it out. The companies that were already weak and trying to muddle through are getting are basically uh, meeting the end of the line, whether it's JCPenney or lots of brick-and-mortar retail. I, I think very highly of him, but I think JCPenney started, its problem started when Bill Ackman got involved. He put, yes. uh, I think his Bob, I think his first name was Bob, Bob Johnson, Maple in, and the first thing Johnson said was, we're going to eliminate the word sale 
out of our vocabulary. And they started losing enormous market share and they got themselves into trouble. And then I think Neiman Marcus, the other one, uh, I believe, got leveraged up in, a, in an LBO. Well, that's happening a lot. And what, what you're seeing. But I'm not sympathetic to that. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You know, and uh, and we wind up with fewer, with fewer bigger companies at the end of all this. And then you know, the government is attacking Google and Facebook, yes. and Amazon, the companies that have really provided us a great comfort in this uh, unusual period. Oh, they're definitely adding value. Yes. <laughs> and you see this reflect in the stock market because the stock market is two markets. If you're uh, if you're smart enough to be in the top notch quality names, you're doing reasonably OK. The Nasdaq is unchanged for the year or down anomalous sum of money and everything else is sucking wind. So tomorrow night, there's the ladies investment club. There are 15 ladies. They gave me a list of their holdings. And I, I said to myself, they want to be giving me advice rather than me giving them advice. <laughs> Apple, Apple, 25 times earnings. Facebook, 30 times, 32 times earnings. Square Inc., no earnings, big multiple. Amazon, 125 times current earnings. Fees are 38 times earnings. They're doing pretty good. <laughs> They're doing very well, but they own that sector of the market that has been performing well. And the other stuff that's com complex or has a certain amount of leverage and hair associated with it is going nowhere. And you got to decide your style. I, I tend to be more of a value investor. So I have some of those tier one companies, but the bulk of my investments are in second tier companies, which are not doing as well. But I, I see great fundamental value. And one of the two things are going to happen, either the top tier will correct to come down to the second tier, the second tier will catch up to the first tier. Any tips there? Yeah, well, basically uh, tips in the context of individual companies. Sure. Well, I, I, I hesitate, but my favorite idea is not a stock, it's a bond. But uh, I don't know if it's suitable for your audience, but you have to be a QIB. There's a, a company called Legato. Legato owns billions of dollars of spectrum, a 5G spectrum. They spent the last five or 10 years trying to get it approved by the FCC in terms of its usage. And it, it took so long because the Department of Defense, bogusly, in my opinion, has objected. I go back to President Eisenhower said, beware of the military industrial complex. So the military complex objected. Finally, the FCC, by a vote of five to zero, approved the spectrum use. And they have a bond outstanding that picks at 13% that matures in December that uh, is going to be worth par. So the total debt outstanding against that issue is about two and a half billion, but the value of the spectrum approaches 10 billion. So you're adequately covered. So you buy a bond at 85 and you get par in December and you get a 13% coupon while you wait. But now there are a lot of, a lot of things to be done in the market. And, um, you know, my concern is, you know, the market is so trendy. You know, uh, when mm -hmm. a trend reverses, they they, they take the yes. band and play with the girls. You know, yeah, your reversion to the mean is always uh, a, right. a factor. Lee, let me ask you this. If government is going to bail out big businesses every time there's a crisis and small businesses end up losing, aren't we in effect but they're socialists? They're small businesses as well, aren't they? Uh, they are now. I mean, read out, I just read now, in fact, if I leave your screen, that people's unemployment benefits are now exceeding what they were making when they were employed. But wh I guess, why are we bailing out bad businesses, though? I mean, if the airlines hadn't bought back stocks. Well, it's a form of social welfare. Yeah. Get back, to, go back to 08. If they let AIG go bust and didn't uh, lend them assistance or Chrysler in the, in the cycle before, it would have a lot of social welfare payments to make because there would be a lot more unemployed people. 
So by helping out these companies that have a liquidity crisis, not a, a solvency crisis, they're avoiding the social welfare payments they would have to make to unemployed people. So I, I, I think that the government is doing what they should be doing. It's a shame that they had to do it, okay? And there'll be a price to be paid for it long term, which the market is not focused on. Right now, the market is focused on zero cost of money, and we're coming back. You know, my country club has 710 homes. I, uh, they finally opened up to serve uh, dinners. Okay, I went to dinner the night before last, and there were five couples that had the courage oh. to go to yeah. dinner. Right. Yeah, you can look. You can lift all the restrictions you want. You, your consumer behavior is going to be a factor. I know people in the restaurant business. They tell me you cannot make money if you're less than fifty percent occupied. Right. And with the social distancing, there's no way they're going to be fifty percent occupied. No, it's it's a tough. I think road we back. come back very slowly, and the market is coming back very fast. And you don't know whether it's because of zero interest rates and the government hands out all these checks, where the money's going to Robinhood, not the charity, which I support is a great charity, but Robinhood, the brokerage firm. They're playing in all these high multiple stocks. But if we're bailing out airlines who, and, and this isn't anything against the airlines, we're just using this as an example. The airlines spent the last 10 years buying back stock instead of putting away cash on hand. And now there's a disaster and we got to bail them out. Doesn't that somehow stifle innovation and the ability of little guys to create new things that we should be looking at, new models? I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but I think this virus is something highly unusual. Right. The, the companies are being, uh, are, are suffering a penalty. I mean, people say that in 08, you know, Lehman, Lehman Brothers did go bankrupt. Bear Stearns didn't go bankrupt. If you own Bear Stearns stocks at 80, 90, or 100, and you got $2, as far as you're concerned, they went bankrupt. Yeah. You know, so I, I think there's tremendous pain and suffering being inflicted on these industries that are being bailed out. Uh, the executives of United Airlines have uh, options, which really are just totally out of the money now. And, you know, frankly, they could not have foreseen this virus, I guess. So what's government's role going to be going forward? I believe that they're going to have an increased role in the economy. I think for sure you can forget about buybacks. I think they could end up dictating dividend policy. Um, and I view that as a negative. Yeah. I'm a capitalist with a heart. Right. <laughs> I'm actually, without any self-serving bragging, I, I've been very lucky. You know, I, I, I'm the first generation of my family to be born in America, first generation to go to college. All my schooling up until my MBA was public school, public grade school in the South Bronx, public high school in the South Bronx, public college in the West Bronx. Yeah. I followed the advice of Harley Screeley and I went west to, at that time, was Hunter College, now called Lehman College. Mm -hmm. And I get an MBA from Columbia. I wind up at Goldman Sachs uh, and had a great run. I made a great deal of money. Uh, I, I respect money, but I don't really, uh, I, I don't have any enormous use for money. You know, I've figured out 30 years ago, there's only four things you can do with money. And I'd say this to all your listeners. The four things you could do with money is number one, you could please yourself. Buy art, buy home, buy planes, buy boats. I happen to be of the belief that accumulated possessions brings with it aggravation. So I, I'm of the view less is more. I don't collect art. Uh, I have nice art, but it's stuff that I like looking at. It's not valuable. So the first thing you do with money is pleasure yourself. I don't like accumulating things. Second thing you do with money is give it to your kids. But if you have a lot of money, giving all your money to your children is a mistake because you deprive them a sense of self-achievement. Third thing you do with money is give it to the government, but only your schnook gives the government money. They don't have to give. You pay your taxes. You're a citizen. You pay your taxes. Called upon you. You don't volunteer. 
And I say the guy that's most knowledgeable of the tax code in America, who is a generous guy in the end, is Warren Buffett. Basically, he's giving all his money away to charity to Bill and Melinda Gates. He's not giving as little as possible to government because he doesn't pay himself anything. He doesn't pay dividends, you know, and he's going to give it all away. Fourth thing you could do with money is you recycle it back into the economy to make the world a better place. And that's what I've chosen. That's why I've taken the giving pledge with Buffett and supporting those institutions and organizations that made a difference to me and my family in my lifetime. But the government's in our pants and uh, that affects my thinking. I think the multiple in the market should be uh, penalized for that role of government. But I think they're doing what they have to do. And uh, the economy is going towards more concentration. No question, the bigger getting bigger and the successful are getting more successful, as they should in some degree. I mean, uh, why, why should we break up Google? I mean, why should we break up Amazon? Let me shift gears to China, if I could. U.S.-China tensions have been rising for some time now. There's lots of talk about decoupling. There's a particular f- form of it that's, ha- that's happening on financial markets, which is the proposal, well, now a bipartisan proposal in the Senate for the uh, companies listed on the New York Exchange headquartered in China have to meet all the SEC requirements for transparency. What do you think is going on there? And uh, what's your overall view of, of this relationship, which is big and important, but fraught with problems? Well, I would say I'm not an expert in China relations, but I would say that the president wants to get reelected. And it seems that he's pivoting towards blaming China for all the problems. And uh, that's probably not going to be, in the end, a good thing. I think what China is doing in Hong Kong is uh, not doing, I think they had an obligation now to 2047 or 2050 to leave Hong Kong as it was and they're now trying to take it over in an extreme way. And I think all this thing will lead to geopolitical intentions, which is uh, tensions which are not good. I believe in free markets. I believe the world prospers by world trade. We're all better off. I believe in the law of comparative advantage. I think that we're better off uh, having peaceful coexistence with China the world is better off with open and free trade, and these tensions in the end are not good. But having tensions with China is becoming a bipartisan issue. Republicans and Democrats both view China unfavorably. Do you see us going down a bad road with China? Potentially, yeah. I mean, China's not going to roll over. I, I look at healthy competition. You know, uh, China innovates, we innovate. Target's a better company, and uh, Walmart's a better company because of uh, Amazon. You know, we tend to do our best when we're challenged. If you, if you have the capacity and the knowledge and the work ethic, people that basically innovate challenge other people. Right. And so uh, I think it would be very bad if we try to legislate China out of business rather than outcompete them. I do believe we should have a le- level playing field. So I think Trump has done a good thing by opening up a dialogue about trade with China. But I don't think we should take a political course. Yeah, look, there are two ways to win a race. One is to run faster than the other guy. The other is to slow the other guy down. And I'm with you. I'd rather run faster. Exactly. In fact, it's funny you say that because when I was in business, I uh, required everybody I hired to read about a parable about a lion and a gazelle. It says every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up, it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are <laughs> right. a lion or a gazelle, when the sun comes up, you better be running. <laughs> right. I think essentially trade with China, competition with China is constructive 
if it's a level playing field. It has not been a level playing field. The president has tackled that, but I don't want to basically go overboard uh, politically. Let me shift a little bit and let me ask you about something else. You're a firm believer that education is the way to advance in America, that you know, attaining a really good education is the way to get ahead. What do you see as the future here in education? You know, schools in doubt, online education might reinvent itself in a, in a really great way. I think way. minorities are being screwed here by the shutting down the economy and working at home. They don't have the computers and the infrastructure uh, as some of the rich kids have. It's right. very unfortunate. But I, you look, I just cite the statistics. The average lifetime earnings of a college graduate is well in excess of a million dollars more than a non-college graduate. Okay, so the education gives them the skill set to be more competitive in the economy. And that's what my family and I have decided to devote a lot of our resources. We have something called Cooperman College Scholars, where we are paying college tuition for 500 kids in Newark, New Jersey to go to college. And we're hopefully changing the trajectory of their life. And I think faster economic growth will do us well to absorb more of the labor force. So it's faster growth in education, you know, and... Uh, it's uh, not necessarily through the tax code. I do believe in the progressive income tax structure, by the way. I think rich people should pay more. And when I've been rallying for five or six years, and you can't get a straight answer from most people, is rich people pay the majority of taxes in the country. What should the maximum tax rate be on wealthy people? Because that will define the revenue yield to the government, and the government has got to size themselves that revenue yield. Okay? If you ask Bernie Sanders, he'd say 90%. If you ask Elizabeth Warren, she plays 70%. I asked Warren Buffett seven years ago what he thought, and he had a very rational response. If you make over a million dollars a year, 35%. If you make $5 million more, 40%. Well, guess what? Depending upon what state you live in, you're already well past that. Okay, the federal is 39. New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, what, another 12, 13, 14% in total, or something like that? You know, so you're well over 50%. California, 13%. So we're there. And I think when you start asking people to give you 60, 70% of what they make through their work effort, it's just morally wrong. We may get there. I'll pay whatever taxes are demanded of me. I'm not leaving the country, but I don't think it's the right policy. Well, how do we get these people who have been left behind caught up? I mean, is online education going to be available to them? And will it be of value the way in-person education will be? No, I think in-person, look, it's like uh, you go to a dinner table, you see somebody sit down with an iPhone, and, you know, the, the, your dinner companion, and you're looking at their emails and their iPhone. I think we need social interaction. There's yeah. a lot to be gained. You know, I made friendships when I went to business school uh, 50 odd years ago with guys that I'm very friendly with this day. Mario Gabelli is one of my closest friends, Watt Sandberg. We met at Columbia Business School. And I think there's a lot of benefit from social interaction. I don't think we want to be a society that is, everything is virtual. Do you think that this crisis puts us in a place where we just become a virtual society or do you think we bounce back? I think there'll be more working at home than there's been in the past. You know, real estate seems to be a big fatality. Companies have figured out that they could do more of this at home, but I don't think it's going to replace social interaction. Those of us who have been working at home for 11 weeks agree with you. <laughs> I, got a wife, I, got, I have a wife. I'm married 56 years, 55 years. I got to take her for a ride 
on the weekends because she has cabin fever. Yes. Yeah. I, I ride to nowhere. You know, I, had an interesting, <laughs> I had an interesting ride last weekend. I went to a Meisner Park in Boca Raton and I saw a hundred cars in line waiting for free food. People that need oh, meals. Terrible. Yes. Terrible. Let people go back to work. You're absolutely right about that. Yep. Yep. Lee, thank you so much for your generous time today. This has been absolutely fascinating. I want the country to do well. And I, we got to work together. Lee, we can't thank you enough. And truer words have never been spoken. Thank you very much. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.